our broken pieces are an important part of our journey of growing in Christlikeness. A glorious pursuit of experiencing long-term change that only comes from following Jesus. It is an ancient journey of practicing the Christian virtues and living the truly abundant life as God defines it. A life made possible by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, and modeled by God's Son. This is the beauty of becoming. Well, good morning. It is good to have you here in the room. And those of you joining us online, thank you for being with us today. We are halfway through our 21 days of prayer and fasting here at Cornwall Church. And I just want to encourage you. It's been great to hear some uh, different people have talked about what God is doing in their life. And I'm excited about what he will continue to do as we continue to seek him together. And if you're uh, participating with this, I want to say finish strong. We're, we're entering into the last 10 days of this. If maybe you started strong but kind of fallen off, I want to encourage you to get back in the game. And, and continue to seek God. And, and if you aren't, haven't been a part of this, I would love for you uh, to be a part of this for the next uh, 10 days as we finish out our 21 days of prayer and fasting and just excited about what God is doing in our midst. Also glad that you're here today because we're starting a brand new series. This will, series will take us clear up until Easter. And so we're going to be spending a few weeks uh, in this series. And today, as we start off the series, today is kind of a maybe an introduction to the series, maybe laying the foundation a little bit as well. And, uh, and so if you walk out here saying, well, that wasn't much of a sermon, it, it, it's part of a, a bigger whole. So I invite you to be a part of that. You know, there are times when people will say, I think that the Bible is filled with fables and fantasy stories and fairy tales. And maybe you feel that way. And, and by the way, Jesus told a lot of stories. So uh, at least we would agree, at least I'm part of that. But we're glad you're here. It's interesting because uh, Timothy Keller, who's a brilliant mind, and before him, Frederick Buechner, and before him, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien all had a, a take on this whole idea of scripture and fables and fairy tales. These four would all take a different twist on it. They would say, in essence, every one of them said a version of this, that good fables... Good fantasy stories, which, you know, J.R. Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis wrote good fantasy stories, and even good fairy tales are a fictional telling or retelling of a deeper, truer reality. That these great stories that are, that are written and crafted are actually a reflection of a reality, a reality based on the truth of Scripture and God's kingdom. I mean, you think about that. I don't know if you've ever, like, gone to a Disney movie and thought, yeah, this has been a good movie. I mean, really good. But the storyline seems familiar. Like, if you ever watched Finding Nemo, that is basically the story of the prodigal son right out of Luke 15. I mean, straight up. Years ago, uh, Ron, our, our worship director, he said, the movie, uh, and this goes way back, but The Emperor's New Groove um, if you read the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, it's an identical story. It's an amazing thing. And so I thought if that's true, if these, if these stories, if these fables, if these fairy tales point to a, a deeper, truer reality, then what better way to start off our series than with reminding you of some of the stories we've grown up with and to see if you can see the deeper, truer reality underneath it. 
Uh, let's start with, um, how about Sleeping Beauty? Sleeping Beauty, you have this princess, her name's Aurora, and uh, she's born, she's betrothed to a, a young prince named uh, Philip, and at her christening or whatever, there's these fairies that show up. One of them blesses her with beauty, and one of them blesses her with song, and the third one that's getting ready to bless is kind of kicked out of the way by this other fairy that didn't get invited, was a little upset, and her name was Maleficent. So she comes in, instead of giving a blessing, she gives a curse, saying that by the time she's six, uh, 16, that Sleeping Beauty will, will poke her finger on a spindle at, a, at an enchanted spinning wheel, and she will die. Pretty traumatic for a child's story. But then Meriwether, this other fairy that kind of got edged out, she comes with her blessing, and while she doesn't have the power to overthrow what Maleficent has said, she has the power to counter it and downgrades this death sentence to a curse that if that actually does happen, then she will go into a deep, deep sleep, and this spell could only be broken by the kiss of true love. Well, one day, Princess Aurora is out singing, like to bunnies and stuff. And her voice is so beautiful that Prince Philip hears this and he's drawn in like the sirens of Homer's Odyssey. He's drawn by this voice and then he sees her beauty and they fall in love. And then they go their separate ways. Well, on her 16th birthday, there's going to be a celebration and Maleficent lures her to a, an enchanted spinning wheel. Why she is on a spinning wheel on her 16th birthday, I have no clue. But as she does, her finger is indeed poked, and she all falls into the sleep, as does the rest of the kingdom. We'll have to fast forward through all of this. Prince Philip comes, takes Maleficent out, comes, and he kisses Sleeping Beauty. The spell is reversed. She comes to life. They fall in love and live happily ever after. Now, if you can't hear that story and see God's story of redemption on a grand scale, Come to me after the service and I'll speak to you like you're a four-year-old. It's the picture of redemption of a fallen, cursed kingdom that is redeemed and, 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 and life is forever different. What I don't understand is why whoever writes these stories can't get new material because the story of Snow White is the exact same story as Sleeping Beauty. Just move around some of the parts. Snow White is a princess. Here we go again. This time it's her stepmother, the queen, who's kind of self-centered, actually very narcissistic, loves to look into her magic mirror at herself and ask the mirror, who's the fairest of them all? You know the story and you are a queen. One day, while this Princess Snow White is out singing, a prince hears her voice and he's drawn in and he sees her and they fall in love. And while this is happening, the queen is looking into her magic mirror, and the mirror says, you're getting older, sweetheart. There's a new, you know, you know the story, that the fairest of them all is Snow White, which enrages the queen. And so she grabs the huntsman and says, go kill Snow White. And the huntsman goes to fulfill this duty, but he can't bring himself to killing this young maiden. So he takes her to the woods and says, run for your life. Don't ever come back. And she does. And she happens upon a frat house of seven vertically challenged young men. And why we teach our young girls, if you ever find a house with seven men, shack up with them. Horrible, horrible moral lesson on this one. But the queen thinks that Snow, uh, Snow White has died. And so she's going on with her life. Until one day, while she's looking into this magic mirror, the mirror reveals to her that no, indeed, Snow White is still alive. So she disguises herself as a hag and, and has this apple, this forbidden fruit with a curse on it that anyone who would eat of it would go into a 
deep death-like sleep. Some of this sounds familiar on multiple fronts. And so she goes to Snow White with this apple, and Snow White eats it. And she goes into this deep death-like sleep, so much so that they have encased her in this glass sarcophagus, this, this glass casket, so that people can observe her corpse, kind of like Vladimir Lenin for the last 99 years in Red Square. And there she is in this corpse, and this spell can only be broken by the kiss of true love. That sounds familiar as well. Well, a year later, the prince who heard her voice and, and fell in love with her comes upon her, and there she is. A little bit awkward that he's kissing a year-old corpse, but, but he kisses, and after sleeping for a year, apparently no morning breath, however, he kisses her. The spell is reversed and broken. She comes to life, they fall in love, and they live happily ever after. It's the exact same story, and it's the story of redemption. You take Beauty and the Beast. Now we've got a prince, and it's a little different. And the prince is actually pretty self-centered and focused on himself. And, and yet again, there's this disguised old hag, and she doesn't come with an apple. She comes with a rose. And because of his self-centeredness, she puts a curse on him, and he's become this beastly creature, and all of his servants become these living inanimate objects. And this curse can only be broken if there's love that is given and received and there's an expiration date on this one. It's before the last petal from the rose falls. Right. And you know this story. We'll have to fast forward so we can actually get to Scripture today. But we go all the way through that. And in the, in the story enters Belle, not a princess, a fair maiden, although a peasant gal. And over time, she begins to see something, some quality in this beastly creature that actually draws her heart in. And long story short, at the end, there's this big fight, and the, the kingdom is falling apart, and it's the end, and, 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 and the beast is he's shot, and he's dying in the arms of Bell. And there, just before that last petal falls, as his life is slipping away, she expresses her love for him and his love for her, and their curse is reversed, and the whole kingdom, all things are made new again in this kingdom. Sounds so familiar. I mean, even the frog prince. Now, I don't know how the prince became a frog. There was some horrible fairy that did this curse on him. But the prince becomes a frog, and he can only come out of this curse with a kiss. Okay, I see a recurring theme here. And one day, he meets this selfish princess who inadvertently drops a golden ball into the pond. And the frog says, I'll fetch that. I'll go to the bottom of the pond and bring that in exchange for your friendship. And so he goes and gets this, and they become friends. And he is incessant. Kiss me. He's a frog. Kiss me. And she is resistant. And he is persistent. And eventually, she kisses him, which again is a horrible lesson because people have been intoxicated and gone into hallucinogenic states by licking frogs. She kisses this frog, and the spell is broken, and he becomes a prince. And they fall in love and they live happily ever after. It's the same story again and again and again, but it's the most beautiful reality on a deeper, truer level. And what I find interesting is what really turns it all the time. The hinge on this is that transformational kiss. It's something that happens there in these stories. When there is that kiss, and the spell is broken, and the sleeping awoken. The frog stops croaking. 
The love is spoken, and I ain't a-joking. They're living happily ever after. The same story, and it's that transformational kiss. But then you have the ugly duckling, and that one's different. First of all, it's politically incorrect to call a duckling ugly. Attractionally challenged, maybe. There was no curse. The poor thing was born ugly. That's the curse. U-G-L-Y. He's got no alibi. And no one kisses him. The other ducks reject him. He goes to the home of this woman and her hen and cat pester him, so he leaves. Goes to the home of the farmer and his children drive him crazy, so he leaves. And he's by himself in this ugly state, and yet something begins to happen. This gradual, continual change, this transformation, this becoming, so that later, unbeknownst to himself, he is now more capable, more free, more powerful, and more beautiful than he could have ever imagined. There's a metamorphosis that has taken place in his life. And now he is what he was created to be. He was never, ever intended to be a duckling. Now, if these stories point to a deeper, truer reality, then they're true for us. So let me make a kind of a a mashup of some of these stories to paint the picture of our reality. There's a king, a good king, who loves his subjects and creates them perfectly. But there's a curse. There's a forbidden fruit. There's a bite. There's a curse. And there's a sleep. There's a death that comes upon the entire kingdom. And this curse can only be reversed by some kiss. And this incredible prince comes and loves this bride-to-be. And by his kiss, the bride comes to life, and the curse is taken away. And the bride, while he is loved, loves his bride and wants to spend it forever with this one, is an ugly duckling. And the bride has to have this metamorphosis. The spell's been broken, but there's an ongoing change that has to happen. Thus, the title of today's sermon, The Curse, the Kiss, and the Metamorphosis. You see, the story is this. That the kiss of Jesus has brought us to life. It's broken that curse, that spell, the, the death, the sleep, the numbness. But the ugly ducklings that are the bride of Christ still continue in a state of metamorphosis, of changing, of becoming. You say, Bob, do we get fairy tales all day? Maybe. Because maybe they paint a deeper truth. There's a scripture in Hebrews that greatly summarizes and illustrates this this kiss and this metamorphosis. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says this. By one sacrifice, the kiss, he has made perfect forever. That's it. We've come to life. The the, the curse has been broken. The spell is reversed. He's made them perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. There's something that happens, and it's, it's done. It's complete. It's, it's finished. It's the finished work of, of Christ on the cross. That is complete. We are his sons and his daughters. We are the princes and the princesses in the kingdom. But we are being changed and transformed. Thus, 
the title of this series, The Beauty of Becoming. And I know it was not lost to me that the acronym actually spells Bob, but I had nothing to do with that. In fact, when we were talking about and brainstorming series titles last fall, when I was thinking about this whole thing and I was thinking about these Disney stories, I thought maybe we ought to call it Don't Be an Ugly Stepsister, you know, kind of pull Cinderella in it. But it's the beauty of becoming. And it's that metamorphosis, that ongoing work of God in our life, of this transformation of becoming who we were always created to be. Last year, I read a, an incredible book uh, by James Clear. Many of you have probably at least heard of it or read it. It's called uh, the, uh, Atomic Habits, fantastic books. In fact, I'm going to reference something about that next week. But in Atomic Habits, he's talking about change and transformation, be- becoming uh, who we really want to be. Now, his whole focus is, is, is not a biblical focus, but it's about our habits and our lifestyle. Uh, a few uh, weeks ago, I was hearing a, a podcast, an interview with him, And in this, he was talking about how when we seek to change things in our life, we often ask the wrong questions. We address the wrong issue. And and this isn't a word-for-word quote, but this is in the essence of what he said. It's not about what I have achieved, rather who I am becoming. It's not just getting a goal, not just changing a habit, but it's this, who am I becoming? Who is this this metamorphosis, this this changing of the ugly duckling to, to being something of incredible beauty? Uh, The genesis of this series actually happened about two years ago. My friend Gary Thomas, he's no stranger to our church. We've had him speak here multiple times over the years. Used to live in Bellingham. He's an author, a pastor, a speaker. He lives in Colorado now. Um, He's also a marathon runner. We're good friends. Anyway, he sent me a book two years ago that uh, was being re-released. It was a book he wrote years ago, um, but they were kind of repackaging it and re-releasing it. It's called The Glorious Pursuit. And the subtitle there is Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, man, that would make a really good sermon series. This was two years ago. And so I've kind of been, kind of been just like sitting on that for a couple of years. And, and so that, that really is the genesis of this. And he talks about this glorious pursuit, this metamorphosis. And in this book, this is what he says about the glorious pursuit. The glorious pursuit, that is the spiritual call to practice the virtues is a cherished ancient practice in the Christian tradition. Growing in the virtues won't save us, but salvation must lead to growing in the virtues, or one could question the reality of our salvation experience. So it's not trying to earn salvation. We we are saved. We've been kissed. This is now the metamorphosis. This is the ugly duckling. This is the work of the transformation. And he uses this word virtues three times in that sentence. In fact, the whole book is about these Christian virtues. And unfortunately, the whole concept of of virtues has kind of gone out of use. So we we don't even use that word very much in our our vernacular anymore. And more sadly than the, the, the lack of the use of the word virtue is the lack of the practice. It's kind of gone out of practice as well in our world. And unfortunately, sometimes uh, in the church, when you, when you think about the word virtue, often, not always, but often it's, it's kind of almost put in a negative connotation that someone with virtue or a virtuous person, maybe uptight and straight laced and, and never having any kind of joy and no pleasure in their life. And it's just, a, they're just bland and boring and, and beige. No offense for those who are wearing that today, but it's just this, this flat line, no life and no fun. That that's virtue? Very unattractive, it seems. 
last November, there was a, an article that caught my eye. Uh, the headline, this was in the uh, Business Insider, and it said this. It's from November. A man won the legal right to not be fun at work after refusing to embrace excessive alcoholism and promiscuity. The story is that seven years ago, this man worked for an agency, and part of their core values was fun, and they had very specific uh, spelling out what that meant. And it included excessive use of alcohol and promiscuity. And because he did not embrace their value of their, of their vices and lived a life of virtue, he was fired. And it took seven years for actually a court ruling to be able to say, you cannot fire someone for living a virtuous life. But it was, it was put the headlines that this guy who's virtuous, he's not fun, not a fun person. And maybe sometimes we even think, well, if I'm, I'm going to be virtuous, then all these things I can't do and I won't do and shouldn't do and all that. Can I remind you, it's not about what we do or don't do. It's about who we're becoming, right. becoming more like Christ. So when Gary, in, in his book, when he, when he talks about these virtues, he talks about the, the Christian theologians and pastors and writers of centuries past who would speak of this, this ancient practice of pursuing these virtues. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a life that was, that was horrible and joyless and, and passionless. It was quite the opposite. It was pursuing, the, and the virtues that, that he was talking about, the attributes and the attitudes of Christ. It's to become more Christ-like. And that's what I want us to do over these next few months is, is to pursue this and, and to, to go after this, this transformation to this beauty of becoming. And I want to caution us against something. And maybe this is more for me than anybody else. Against this being just a list of things that we're trying to check off and achieve. Remember, it's not about achieving, it's about becoming. And it's real easy when you get into these kind of things to, to think of it as a list because sometimes... When we talk about things like virtues, attributes, attitudes, they're in a list. And sometimes that can make it seem like, well, here's this list of things I've got to, I've got to do this. Got to check that one off. Okay, I'm going to work on this one. Check that off. And I want to caution us against that. We will, um, in a few weeks, start into looking at some of these individual virtues. And I don't want this to be, how am I doing? Did that box get checked on this one? Part of the reason, I think, is because of those lists that are, that are formed. I mean, even in Scripture, I mean, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the churches in a region of Galatia, in Asia Minor, today it would be uh, Turkey, he writes to them and he says, you know, don't let your, your freedom, don't use your freedom to cause other people to stumble. Right. And, and then uh, he says, you know, and, and don't live the way you used to. You know, in your, in your old life, the sinful nature, you know, before the kiss, you know, kind of thing. And then he gives this list of these vices. Like he says, they're obvious, the acts of the sinful nature, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, and drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He says, these things, this list. And then he says, but the virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, and then he gives another list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so it'd be real easy to think it as a list instead of saying, you know what? It's replacing some things and becoming more like Christ. He does this again in Colossians. 
Uh, in, in this uh, letter that he wrote, we, we studied this just recently, the letter he wrote to the, to the church in, in Colossae. And, and he says, um, he says, our, our old nature, put to death the things that belong to that. The, the sexual immorality and, and the lust and the greed and the idolatry. And then he continues on and says, and get rid of things like anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Just get rid of that. But then he gives this virtues, uh, Colossians 3.12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he says, clothe yourself, instead, these virtues, with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive the way the Lord forgave you. And then he says this, and over all these virtues, virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So we see these virtues, and we'll cover a lot of them over these next weeks, but I don't want it to be a checklist for us. I want it to be a process of becoming. So today, in the remainder of our time, I don't want to look at Paul's writings. We'll get to those later in the series. I want us to look at the writings, the rare writings of what I would call the ugly duckling of the 12 disciples, not Judas, Peter, Simon Peter, and I know, poor Simon Peter, he always gets a bad rap, doesn't he? I mean, I give him a bad time. I've got this caricaturized picture of this bumbling, lovable, but clumsy, big old fisherman who's impetuous and speaks before he engages his mind, and he's always doing things impulsively and making a mess, and Jesus is forever rolling his eyes, but he loves him, and he's like, here we go again. And there are things in Scripture that kind of actually lean into that. The first encounter he ever has with Jesus, they're in a boat. Jesus does a miracle. The boat is filled with fish. Peter realizes this guy's something special. What does he do? Face down in the fish. Away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Well, at least he recognizes that he's an ugly duckling. But I can imagine Jesus saying, get up out of the fish. Peter, come on. It's, just, it's a little over the top. Just sit up. We can talk. We can have this conversation. And all throughout, they're out scared to death. And Jesus comes walking on the water. Pete says, I'm going to do that too. Until he sinks. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, this is an unbelievable moment. And Peter says, hey, I've got an idea. Let's build tiny homes for these guys. Oh, come on, Pete. And three years of walking with Jesus, and right before, Jesus is, it, it, the, the heaviness of taking on the sins of the world are coming upon him, and begins to tell his closest companions, hey, I'm, we're going to Jerusalem, and it's going to be rough. I'm going to die. Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. Note to self, don't rebuke Jesus. He pulls him aside and says, Jesus, it's nay on the eye day. You know, none of that stuff. And Jesus gives him another nickname. Satan, get behind me. Then they're in the upper room. Jesus is washing their feet. They're all caught off guard by this. They're all speechless. Peter's one says, nope, not washing my feet. And Jesus says, okay, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do. Okay, give me the full meal deal. I want the white. And I can imagine the disciples going, oh, Peter, don't make it about you. Just sit there. And Jesus tells them, you're all going to abandon me. Peter says, nope, not me. These guys, yeah. They're going to abandon you, but Jesus, I'm with you to the bitter end. Two hours later, they're in the garden. The guards come in. Peter pulls a sword out and cuts Malchus's ear off. Jesus says, Pete, 
put the sword away, got a heel and ear. A couple hours later, they're in Caiaphas's courtyard. And a little 14-year-old girl says, hey, you're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent. You're one of his followers. And he calls down curses upon himself. And three times he denies Jesus. And then he goes out and he weeps bitterly. After that, he goes back home, back to the old life, back to fishing. And the next time he sees Jesus, the scripture says, and you can check me on this, Peter is full on redneck. He's in a boat at night fishing naked, or at least in his underwear. Bible says so. Because when he sees Jesus, it says he put on his clothes, jumped in the water, and swam to shore. What? Peter's fishing in his underwear at night. And that morning, Jesus calls Peter back and says, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And something begins to happen. There's a change. There's this impetuous Peter, this bumbling, not thinking Peter, begins to be transformed. The Holy Spirit within him. On the day of Pentecost, he preaches his first sermon, and 3,000 people become followers of Jesus. The following days, he goes to the temple, and he heals a man that's been there for years. He becomes bold in his witness for Christ, so much so that he's even arrested on multiple occasions and speaks boldly, no more this cowering from a 14-year-old girl, speaks boldly before the authorities, I must obey Jesus, not you. He becomes a leader in the early church. They look to him for decisions. They're looking to him for leadership. There was a time he was in prison and he was released by an angel, not by the guards, by an angel. And then years later, when the good news of the gospel and the grace of God spread beyond the Jewish people, it's Peter who is called to go speak to Cornelius, this Roman centurion. That God revealed this truth to Peter, and Peter goes and he realizes that the gospel is not just for the Jewish people, but it's for all people. And that God doesn't see any people as unclean, that they're all welcomed in this kingdom. And it was Peter. And there's this transformation, and there's this change. And later in his life, he writes these letters to some of the followers of Christ in Asia, Asia Minor. They're small letters, they don't get a lot of attention, they're way in the back of the Bible. They don't have real creative names they're called First and Second Peter. They're, they're letters. And today I want us to look at his second letter. So if you have your Bible or a tablet, your phone, you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Second Peter chapter 1. And I, I want us to just, we'll get through about nine verses, but there's really only one verse I want us to key on today. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He starts off this way. This is a letter. It starts off just kind of acknowledging who he is. Simon Peter, and I love that he uses both names. Simon is the name his parents gave to him. Peter is the name that Jesus gave to him. It's almost like this is who I was, and this is who I am. And this is who I'm becoming, a servant. I'm a servant. I'm not, you know, first and foremost, I'm the one that kind of walked on water. I'm the one that got, you know, let loose from jail. I'm the one that preached Pentecost Sunday sermon. And no, no, no. It says, I'm a servant. Jesus washed my feet. He said, as I've served you, serve one another. That's what I am. I'm a, I'm, it's my identity. I'm a servant. 
and yes, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I walked with him for three years. To those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. This faith that we have, it's not something we got. It's not something we found. It's not something we worked for and earned. It was through the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've received it. I mean, this is a gift. And this faith of ours and this word, he says, that's as precious. And I think about that word. The word precious to me has two different meanings. One is really soft, like, you remember those precious moments, figurines with the big droopy eyes and the tears and all that? I don't know if they even make them anymore. I don't think they should. But regardless, it's kind of, it, it, it kind of makes you go, huh. But then there's precious metal, something that's valuable, something you guard, something that is, that is so important. I don't think he's going, hmm, on this precious, precious faith. He says, we've been given, we've received Something so incredibly valuable. And then he gives them a greeting. We won't spend much time on this. Gives them a greeting. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 3, he begins speaking some truths that he's experienced. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now that's a powerful statement. That's a, that's a big line. We could spend a lot of time on that. And it's true, but I think he's not just giving truths. He's given a summary of things he's experienced. When it says it was his power, because he knows when he preached that sermon and 3,000 people became saved, that wasn't about Peter. That was his power. When he healed the man in the temple, that wasn't because he somehow had these healing powers. That was his power. When he was released from jail by the angel, that was his power. He was witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was his power. He says, when I talk about his power, I know, I've seen it, I've experienced it. His power that has called us. And I wonder if he's saying, yeah, he's called us to be a part of his kingdom, but he thinks about his own calls. That day when he was walking along the seashore, in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus said, Peter, Come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He called him. The time, three years later, when they were back on the same shore, and he had messed up really, really bad. And Jesus said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he calls him. That day when he's down in Joppa, and in prayer, this vision, and this centurion named and Cornelius, and God sends him, he was called. God called him to that. He recognizes the call that God has put on his life. And it's because of his, his glory. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the glorious resurrected Jesus Christ. He saw him ascend to the heavens. He saw the glory in his goodness. He's experienced all this. But he doesn't stop there. The, the glory and, and, and his goodness, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. There's that word precious again. He's given to us. We don't deserve it. We didn't work for this. And there, these, these promises that he's given to us. Notice where he points over and over again, five times. You know, it's his power. 
He's the one that called us. It was his glory and goodness. You know, he's the one that has given us. It's his promises. All of these things, it's, it's all about Jesus. And he says, so that, so that, so that what? You know, so that, why, why do we have all that? Why do we have these great promises? So that through them, the promises, through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, I got to tell you right up front, I don't fully understand this verse. I, th I think it, it, it's beyond maybe the, my capacity to comprehend how we as human beings redeemed, kissed by the grace of God, can participate in the divine nature. And, and I get his Holy Spirit dwelling within us, but we get to be a part of this divine nature. Not that we're God, but we're part of this, that we can participate. You know, you think about a participant's trophy. That's like the lowest common denominator given to you. Hey, you showed up. Look, a trophy for you. But he says, we have a participant's trophy that is the highest, most undeserved common privilege and honor. You get to participate in the divine nature. And all through this, in these opening verses, you just begin to see how the knowledge that Peter has of all this thing has over the years been lived and understood about his power and his calling and his glory and his presence and his promises and now his very nature. And he says, we've been kissed. Do you understand? We've been kissed. The curse has been broken and, and we've been brought to life by the one who loves us most. And we've been kissed, therefore. Therefore, that's the end. Because in the fairy tales, that's kind of the end. You know, yeah, they go back, the big wedding, the bells and the pigeons are let loose and all that, and they live happily ever after. That's the end. Peter says, no, no, remember, he's the ugly duckling. He says, that's not the end. That's the beginning. That's amazing. But this is when the story begins to get beautiful. This is when life begins to be transformed. This is the ongoing transformation. And this is the verse I want us to look at, verse 5. He says, for this very reason. All of that stuff. The divine, you know, the divine nature, God's promises, his call, his power, all of that that we've been given, we don't deserve it, we, we can't earn it, we haven't worked for it, it's just been given to us, it's his grace. For that very reason, because of all this, because we've been kissed, because we're princes and princesses, because the curse has been reversed, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Up to this point, it's all about what God has done, who God is, and his power, and his promises, and his presence, all this stuff. And now he says, now let's turn it to us. Because we have all this, now we make every effort to add to our faith. So well, wait a second, does that mean our faith was inadequate? No, 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 that's not it. Remember, it's precious. It's perfect. It's complete. But to add to it. Let me just read through the passage. We won't go into it in depth, but we're going to circle back to this. So he says, for this very reason... Make every effort to add to your faith. And then he gives his own list of virtues. To add to your faith, goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. 
For if you possess these qualities, or shall we say, virtues, if you possess these virtues, these qualities, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. My goodness, I just looked at the clock. I've got 45 seconds to do the rest of this sermon. Okay, let's go fast. Back to the thing. All right, so he says, for this very reason, make every effort, every effort. And this is where the ugly duckling uh, analogy breaks down. Because in the ugly duckling, he didn't make any effort. It was out of his control. He, he didn't even know it was happening. In our metamorphosis, it's, it's going to take effort. It will take effort. And some of you might push back and say, but I thought it's by grace we are saved through faith and that is sola fide, by grace alone and all that. Yes, yes, yes. That's our salvation. That's our justification. That's, that's by faith. It's not our works. What we're talking about is the transformation, the metamorphosis, the old Christian church word, sanctification. That's where we kick in. That's where our part is. Dallas Willard, I love this quote from him. The path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You've never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. What does Paul say? Forgetting what is behind and straining. That's effort toward what is ahead. I press on. What does he tell Timothy? Train yourself to be godly. That's effort. To say, okay, so salvation is God's part and sanctification is our part. Yes and no. I mean, yes, salvation is God's part. And yes, we have a part. But it's not just us because he gives us his Holy Spirit to walk alongside and to help us and empower us. And it will require cooperation. In Galatians 5, where it says, since we, since we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, I'm here to help you. Let's do this together. Come on, cooperate, work with me. We, we can do this together, this transformation. And so there's this, this both and. In Philippians 2 is illustrated where Paul writes, continue to work out your salvation, not work for, that's by faith, by grace, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Yes, there's effort you put out, but God is at work in you and his Holy Spirit is within you. When he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, but it's by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. My effort, yet not I, but the grace of God was with me. There's a partnership. Soren Kierkegaard said this, now with God's help, I shall become myself. With God's help, I will become the man, the woman that he created me to be. This ongoing transformation, this metamorphosis, this becoming the beautiful one in the power of the Holy Spirit. If ever there was a New Testament church that was an ugly duckling, it was Corinth. You read those letters, They'd been kissed by the king, but they were an ugly duckling group. A lot of mess to work through. Paul writes to them these words. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we've been kissed by the king. We've been transformed, we've been changed, we've been brought to life. Are being transformed into his likeness 
with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right. So what if? What if we just said, okay, I want to lean into this. Yeah, I've been saved by grace. I've been walking with the Lord. I want to make the effort. I want to cooperate with, with the Holy Spirit. And I want to engage in a life of virtue, the beauty of becoming. Because Cornwall Church, you've been kissed. You've been brought to life. And now we become the beautiful people, the beautiful church, the beautiful bride that Jesus gave his life for. All right, I'm going to stop now.